Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, October 3rd. We begin with a look at the state of homelessness in our country. According to Stats Canada, more than 235,000 people in Canada experience homelessness in any given year. What needs to be done to address this complex issue? We discuss with Dr. Karen Shin from the Department of Psychiatry, University of Toronto. It's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Breast cancer accounts for approximately 25% of new cases of cancer and 13% of all cancer deaths in Canadian women. Are we any closer to a cure? We get the latest on the efforts of Canadian researchers from Kimberly Carson, CEO of Breast Cancer Canada. One of the top Canadian chefs is bringing his culinary talents to modern steak here in Calgary. Details on the delicious event and an update on how the culinary scene is doing in Calgary post-pandemic from Stephen Deere, owner of Modern Steak. And finally, it's Motivational Monday. And this time out, we speak with a Holocaust survivor and best-selling author who's going to debunk the myth of normal. According to the Homeless Hub... More than 1,900 Calgarians experienced homelessness in 2021. As the weather starts to cool down, what do we need to do to help people experiencing homelessness here in Alberta, but nationwide? Joining us to talk about it is Dr. Karen Shin, who's the Assistant Professor of Adult Psychiatry and Health Systems at the University of Toronto. Good morning to you, Doctor. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sue and Andrew. Thanks. Uh, Would you say that, you know, inflation, the rising cost of living, all of those things that we're all experiencing right now, is that... Is that impacting the number of Canadians that are experiencing homelessness? Is it getting that bad out there, do you feel? Yes, for sure. There are structural factors that influence homelessness and lack of affordable housing, uh, lack of support for people who are new immigrants or refugees, difficulty with employment. Also, we're just, you know, coming out of, well, still experiencing, but just coming out of the, the, the lockdown of the pandemic, these are all factors that stress um, the system and stress people in being able to find safe um, housing for themselves. But it's a weird dynamic, uh, Dr. Shin, in that we see all these job openings, but there's homeless, uh, you know, and it seems like it increases with, in, with inflation. It's a very interesting time. Is this a case of having the right resources in the right place? How do, how do we switch things up? For sure. So there are many factors that um, affect um, people being homeless. So while there might be jobs available, um, a lot of the people that are facing homelessness have individual factors that might um, make it more difficult to find employment. Um, uh, At least 50% in some studies, even more um, of people that are facing homelessness have mental health challenges and also substance use issues. So um, it's a population that um, would struggle to... um, perhaps find that that type of um, stable employment, but also to find success in in housing. And, um, you know, studies have shown there's different ways of of supporting people and and needs to be an integrated approach. Um, Housing has to be affordable or there needs to be some sort of support uh, for for subsidies has been shown to to improve people's ability to be housed. But then also, if there are health challenges, mm-hmm. um, the health supports have to be present so people can maintain their housing. So it's not just getting it, but being successful in maintaining it. So is this a case of, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Or do you think we really need to address the mental health side of things before we can even get near the housing insecurity and homelessness issues? It's, it really is um, a chicken and egg dilemma, and I don't think there is a way to entangle that. So in tackling homelessness, um, it is 
um, uh, it, it does require tackling both at once. And there are certainly social determinants of health and better housing improves, improves health. And if people have better health, they're more able to maintain the housing that they need. Um, it is a huge, you know, a huge issue across Canada. Um, StatsCan data shows that, um, you know, about 3% of people um, struggle with um, unsheltered homelessness. And then even a greater number might not be uh, unsheltered, but are homeless and needing to stay with friends or family. Um, and in a year, more than 200,000 Canadians experience homelessness. So it's a it's a huge issue, and, and the numbers have been growing. And we don't have all the numbers yet post-pandemic to really make a comparison, but um, I do think that that uh, numbers will show uh, even more struggles for, for people. Speaking with Dr. Karen Shin, Assistant Professor, Adult Psychiatry and Health Systems at the University of Toronto. And Dr. Shin, we know this isn't a Calgary or an Alberta, or obviously a Canadian-specific issue. Uh, So I'm wondering if if we can take from another nation, maybe another corner of the world, who is getting, uh, you know, some traction, getting things right when it comes to helping out, or maybe even solving the homelessness issue. Is, Is this something we can look at, other models? For sure, um, and there have been um, work. So at St. Michael's, where where um, my my practice and my work is, uh, researchers with the uh, Center for the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions utilized a housing first approach, and this was something that was done internationally, where they provided rent subsidies for people and housed them. And this was a project that was uh, nationwide across Moncton, Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver. So this was a solution that was fanned out across the country. Um, and this showed that if you provided subsidies, housed people, and then um, additionally for people that required um, uh, significant mental health supports in place, those supports within the home, people were more successful. So we are looking at a field internationally for solutions and then also bring them home to make them um, Canadian-specific. Um, you know, this month, on October the 13th, our, our hospital, in conjunction with um, uh, support from the Odette family, is hosting the annual Louis Odette Family Lecture. And this happens annually, and it brings together thought leaders uh, to tackle the homelessness crisis. And we have a keynote speaker from the States, from Harvard, uh, Dr. Howard Coe, and uh, presently, he's the chair of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health Initiatives on Health and Homelessness. So this is a way to raise awareness on the global homelessness crisis, uh, showcase innovative solutions, and bring Canadians together to influence and inspire change. Innovative. I think that's what we need, isn't it? I mean, we need some some really outside-of-the-box thinkers to try and come to the table with some new ideas because what we've done and are continuing to do it clearly is not... I mean, we're taking strides for sure, but it's not working, is it? No, and it is a large problem. I think we it, we can't have a sense of hopelessness about it, and um, by you know, talking about it, reducing the stigma of it, and also showing that initiatives work, I think that really can help galvanize um, you know, energy, whether it be through health you know, research um, policies, um, you know, public health structures and political structures, I think all of that is needed to really tackle the problem. So, um, you know, I welcome people in, in, in Alberta to also join in on the lecture. Um, it's available online virtually, um, a great opportunity to hear um, someone uh, internationally renowned to speak about the, the issues on October 13th, 5 p.m. Um, Eastern Standard Time. But um, you can log on virtually if you visit stmichaelsodetlecture.ca.
Dr. Shin, do you think uh, part of the challenge from where you're standing and, and from all folks who, who want to, you know, really tackle this issue is is fighting the apathy of, of perhaps many of us who throw our hands in the air and say homelessness is always going to be here. It's always going to be a factor in society. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the apathy, I, I think, can be demoralizing. And also um, the, the sense of um, stigma where people don't necessarily want to... Um, engage in 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 the in in the um you know engage in different solutions or think about it um as uh, as a societal problem and thinking of it as the other because when you know when there are inequities within society it actually hurts all of us and you know as, as healthcare practitioners and also um educators and training the new um the next generation of healthcare providers, we need to ensure that people see that there are social determinants of health. We're all interconnected. That you know, we can, we need to work together within their communities to make it better. And this actually lifts everyone up. It's important we continue the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Dr. Shin. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Karen Shin, Assistant Professor, Adult Psychiatry and Health Systems at the U of T. Breast cancer is the number one most diagnosed cancer in the world. Despite the widespread impact of the disease with one in eight women facing a diagnosis in their lifetime, Canadians still really in the dark to the research that's accessible to them. To talk about it, we're joined this morning by Kimberly Carson, CEO of Breast Cancer Canada. Good morning to you, Kimberly. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me. October Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so what better time to talk about it? First, give us a a little bit of a breakdown of the role of Breast Cancer Canada. Yeah, we are uh, focused on breast cancer research and making sure that people understand and know as much as they can about the disease. We've been doing it for, we've been funding breast cancer research now for 31 years. Okay, so you've got the the data on it, you've got the... Uh, you know, uh, the years behind, the experience, and that's what people want to lean on when they're battling uh, breast cancer, I would, I would assume. So what, what is the greatest takeaway, Kimberly, from this survey? I understand 15, uh, just over 1,500 Canadians were surveyed? Yeah, just over 1,500 um, Canadians were surveyed. And as you, you mentioned in your introduction, you know, certainly the glaring um, piece that we saw was that almost 90% were not prepared for a breast cancer diagnosis, yet at the same time, it's the number one diagnosed cancer in the world. And I think the other shocking statistic that we found was that almost three quarters of of the people couldn't even identify that there was more than one type of breast cancer. And we know that there's over 50 different types of breast cancer. And that's what research has led us to, which actually changes your treatment plan. So now perhaps you wouldn't actually have to have chemotherapy, for example based on the type of breast cancer you have. So these are, you know, these are huge breakthroughs, I think, when it comes to research and that people aren't aware. Yeah, and and you're right, and and we need to be more... We need to be more aware, certainly, of something that can affect so many of us. Do you think, though, that it's maybe, you know, kind of that the concept of I don't want to know until I absolutely have to know? Why would I research something that I don't want? You know, I think given that it's one in eight women in their lifetime, you're probably going to know someone, and whether that's yourself or a family member or even just a friend, uh, you know, it, it probably never hurts to have a little bit of knowledge about what's going to happen or the different types of treatment so that you, you know, you walk in with your eyes wide open. And the idea of knowing more, Kimberly, I think it gets back to what I think of, of, of breast cancer in that not, not one person is affected by breast cancer. When, when somebody in your family or a friend or a coworker finds out that they have breast cancer, the impact is much, much bigger than the individual, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we're running the No More campaign um, with the double entendre on K-N-O-W with knowledge and no as in N-O, make it stop, Mm -hmm. no more, let's stop breast cancer. So again, you know, the more we know, the sooner we can end it. And we always talk about women, and yes, I'm sure we'll get a texter says men can get breast cancer too. We know that, right? It's it is certainly yeah. something that can affect both sexes. Majority of the time, it's going to be women. Where are we though, in terms of you know getting to the point where do you think we'll ever have a cure? Well, I think that looking at a cure. You know, in some cases, depending on the type of breast cancer, and again, we're going back to that 50 different types, if we catch it in an early stage, we we can cure it. So in some cases, it is curable. So, and I think that's back to the knowledge where we need people to understand that, that, you know, there's been huge advances in research and in treatment and in uh, detection that we can actually cure it in some cases. When uh, we look at what we do here as a nation, Kimberly, can we compare it to other nations as far as, uh, you know, the research and the, the technology that we're doing to, to put forth some kind of a treatment or a cure compared to other nations? Or are we uh, on top of the game? Yeah, Canada, Canada does tend to be quite leading when it comes to cancer research and certainly breast cancer research. You know, we are having a lot of breakthroughs right now looking at a blood test that would be in conjunction with your mammogram. And that's certainly that Canada... Canada's leading the way on. Um, we're funding some of that research right now in Manitoba. So, you know, I think you're going to see a lot of advances in breast cancer research over the next few years, and Canada will be instrumental in, you know, pr- bringing a lot of that to the world stage. You know, I, I think you're right when, when you said earlier, there are so many people who will be touched by breast cancer, by cancer as a whole, but breast cancer specifically. Are there some really great resources or websites that you think are, are the best ones for us to go and just even find out a little bit more as it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month and the No More campaign? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of information available at our site, which is best, breastcancerprogress.ca. Um, and then certainly from our site, we can lead you to some of the scientific treatments, you know, the breakdown on different types of breast cancer. So a lot of information there for people to, you know, check and lead them into further knowledge or uh, information that they want to, to find out about maybe certain types of breast cancer or certain new types of treatment that are coming, new types of diagnostics that are coming. All of that information would be available. Kimberly, thanks for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me and watch for our one in eight demonstration uh, in Alberta today as well. Good stuff. Thank you. That is uh, Kimberly Carson, CEO of Breast Cancer Canada. Much more online at bcsc.ca or breastcancerprogress.ca. It is always good to arm yourself. The more information, the better, no matter what, right? Whether it's you or somebody else that you love. Award-winning restaurant Modern Steak is excited to welcome Top Chef Canada Season 2 contestant Xavier Lacaz for a delicious pop-up concept in October. Joining us with all the tasty details is the owner of Modern Steak, Stephen Deere. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us. And uh, I want to also, while we got you, we're going to ask you about the state of the Calgary restaurant scene and and if things are bouncing back and what needs to be done to bring it back to the vibrancy that we saw pre-pandemic. But before we get there... This is exciting because I've seen it all over social media. People are very excited. Tell us what's coming up with this pop-up. Yeah, so uh, Xavier and I have a, a kind of a long-term relationship. We, uh, I, bought, I used to own the restaurant Muse, and he was a formula chef there, so we've been friends for a long time. And 
I had this idea about doing a French uh, steakhouse uh, pop-up about three years ago, and then COVID obviously got in the middle of that. So this uh, summer, we worked out the details, and we are finally able to do the event. Now, he has a name in the world of chefing, does he not, Stephen? We should know about him. He was on, was it Top Chef Canada? He was on Top Chef Canada Season 2, um, but he's... Well, uh, I'm biased, obviously. I think Zob's, Zob's such a great guy. He's a legend. Uh, he does such great work in the kitchen. So, you, you know, you, you may have seen him around the city. You've probably had his food before, and he always does something outstanding. All right. Well, let's just talk, let's talk about, uh, you know, you get tickets for this. You, you, you enjoy the pop-up stuff. But it is, like, for example, a modern steak, 365 days a year. We like the special things that are popping up. Uh, but how do you see the, the, the state of the Calgary restaurant scene at this point, Stephen? What are you seeing as far as the challenges for, for people like yourself? I like that you had Faisal on just before me. He's a, a good friend and, and joins at the restaurant. He was saying some interesting things that really affect our business, to be honest. Um, it's a tale of uh, two stories right now in the restaurant business. Um, things are, are if you're, you know, you're doing a good job and, you know, you're, you're relatively busy and things feel pretty good. I'd say the restaurant scene is bustling right now. But at the same time, um, on, on the backside, the, what the guests don't see is that we're, you know, we still are massively short labor. Um, inflation, food inflation is through the roof. And so, you know, you combine those two things and, you know, a lot of supply chain issues about getting product in and being able to keep consistency. So we have challenges on, on the business side, but the guest side is going quite well. But, you know, the balance of those two things is, you know, being profitable to keep your doors open. And that's a challenge for all of us right now. Stephen, is that why we're seeing restaurants kind of doing things that are a little bit different, like a happy hour, a date night, or, or bringing a top chef in, just to try and, you know, boost people coming in and go, and, and spending their dollars, really, frankly? Uh, absolutely. I think you want, you know, you want to keep things fresh. Um, I think in today's time, you know, we, our, our, attention pa- our attention span is getting shorter and shorter. So, you know, we like to like to do unique things to make sure people are talking about you and seeing, seeing, your, name, seeing your name out there. But it is, um, it, you, you, there's a new dimension that I kind of talk with our, 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 our employees and, and other guests is that, you know, we used to go out to a restaurant for, you know, food service ambience. Those were the three. The fourth dimension is how it makes you feel. And these are the type of things that make you feel good. Something special, you dress up or, you know, whether it's buying local product or you're buying in the story. So this is the new thing that you kind of are going to see lots of restaurants are kind of moving into new fun things that keep things exciting. All right, I can see here, we just head to uh, modernsteak.ca to book for the pop-up? Yeah, so um, just go to modernsteak.ca. You'll see the pop-up right on right there. You can click on it, and that will get you into the Biftec Modern, which is the French pop-up on the second floor. And if you're just looking for regular modern steak, you can just click a, re- a regular res- reservation also through the site. Okay, now that you've said steak, it's mm-hmm. all I'm thinking about, Stephen. Yeah. But, uh, thanks for doing what you do, and uh, we appreciate it. All right, thanks very much. That is Stephen Deere, owner of Modern Steak. For tickets and more info about the pop-up, again, modernsteak.ca. On this Motivational Monday, we wanted to introduce to you Dr. Gabor Mate, described as one of the most innovative thinkers of our time and revered for his work on addiction, trauma, and the mind-body connection. We say good morning to you, Dr. Mate. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. You've written a new book called The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Why it's 14 years since you wrote your last one. What prompted you to get back into the uh, the business of being an author again? Well, this is a book I've been planning for 10 years. And uh, I've dealt with 
in my previous books with ADHD and childhood development, stress and the mind, body, unity and health and illness and with addictions, as you pointed out. Um, but I wanted to widen the lens. I want to look at the whole society. I want to look at what is it about this culture that so many people, amidst all this wealth and technical advances and medical know-how, why is it that so many more kids are being diagnosed with mental health conditions, people are cutting themselves, chronic diseases are on the rise, high blood pressure is on the rise, autoimmune disease is on the rise. So what's going on in the, in the social environment that is driving this rise in, uh, in, 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 in lack of well-being? I mean, there was an article in the New York Times three weeks ago about a teenager who's on 10 different psychiatric medications, if you can believe it, and that's not unusual. So something's going on, I'm saying, in the broader culture, and that's what I wrote about in this book. Uh, Gabor, can you give us your perspective, you know, coming at, you know, from being a Holocaust survivor, your unique perspective into how life can affect our physical and mental health? So if you can give us just a, a brief description of your journey. Sure. So what I'm saying in this book is that trauma, which is a psychic wound that people sustain, can have lifelong implications, and it did for me. So my infancy and the fact that my mother had to give me to a stranger to save my life and I didn't see her for five or six weeks, that had a huge impact on my relationships, on how I parented my kids, and even my work as a physician, which wasn't good either for me or for my family. And what I'm saying that in this culture, um, a lot of people are wounded, traumatized, without even knowing it, or and certainly without the medical profession recognizing the huge scientifically demonstrated links between trauma and stress and, and illness of body and mind. And just to give you one quick example, a Canadian study showed that men who are sexually abused in childhood have tripled the rate of heart attacks, not because they smoke or drink, but because of the physiological impacts of trauma. So trauma is this huge unseen dynamic, and it affects so many people. You say trauma is a, you know, it's a psychic wound. So what is it actually doing, do you believe, to our bodies then, that, that, that we're storing it and it's causing so much damage? Well, first of all, it, trauma causes inflammation. It physiologically causes inflammation, and inflammation makes it more likely that you get autoimmune disease or, or cancer or heart disease. Secondly, trauma imposes certain behavior patterns that themselves lead to a lot of stress. So say in my case, this example of my mother giving me to a stranger, what message does a 12-month-old get or 11-month-old get when the mother disappears? The message he gets is that he's not wanted, that he's not lovable. Well, now if you don't perceive yourself as lovable or wanted, you're going to work very hard to be wanted and loved by the world. That means you might become a workaholic to try and prove your value, your validity, or justify your existence. That workaholism then imposes a lot of stress on your body and on your mind, and it affects, in my case, how I treated my children and, 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 and my spouse. So trauma has these lifelong implications both on our bodies and on our psyches, our, our minds. Dr. Mate, I'm wondering, your background, you 14 years as a doctor in Vancouver treating people suffering from drug addiction, the lessons you learned from that experience, because obviously you're an academic, uh, but, you know, being, you know, face-to-face with people and helping them work through their issues, what's your greatest takeaway? Well, it's in a statistic, which is that in the downtown east side of Vancouver, where I worked for 12 years, actually, is origin, they make up 5% of the population. 30% of the men in jail in this country are indigenous origin. They make up 5% of the population. 
50% of the women in jail in this country are indigenous. They make up 5% of the population. Why? Because they're the most traumatized, tormented segment of our population historically. So the lesson that I got there is that the more traumatized people are, the more they're driven to escape their pain through addictive behaviors. So that addiction, as many other mental health conditions, are not genetic diseases. They're not choices people make. They're attempts to escape from pain. And so if we want to prevent addictions, we have to deal with the conditions in this society that cause so many, so many people to suffer so much trauma in childhood. So what do we do? Do we seek out treatment ourselves? What about those who may not even be aware that they're suffering trauma? Those that are not aware, there's not much you can do for it. But you could do a lot of things that could help bring this awareness to the public much more deeply. For example, what if physicians were trained in trauma? They're not. The average medical student doesn't hear a single lecture on the relationship of trauma and physical or mental illness, even though scientifically there's tens of thousands of bits of research that more than prove those connections. So we could educate the medical profession in trauma. So when you go to the physician with an addiction or mental health issue or even a physical health issue like multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis, which are being proven by science to be very much connected to stress and trauma, the doctor would actually talk to you about trauma in your life. In addition to giving you what medical help you needed, they would raise that question for you. What if we trauma-trained our teachers? Mm. So when they see kids who have trouble learning or, or they have difficulty behaving, they wouldn't be focused on the behaviors. They'd be focused on the child's emotional needs. What if we trained our judges and our prosecutors and our lawyers to recognize that most of the people that in front of them in the courts are traumatized people? And while you have to protect society from harmful behavior, you could actually correct people, you could actually have a correction system that actually respected human beings and did the best to rehabilitate them, understanding that they're traumatized people. So just trauma awareness, as we pointed in this book, The Myth of Normal, would bring us to much closer to a humane society. Dr. Mate, what do you hope to achieve with the book? Who do you hope reads it? More for educational purposes, or could this be somebody reading it and, and maybe coming to the realization that they've suffered from trauma and then they get the help they need? It's that latter. I mean, reading this book will help people understand their own life experience. They'll, it'll help them understand why they behave the way they do, why they feel the way they do. It'll also give them some pathways to overcome those traumatic imprints. So, yeah, I wrote the book for everybody. And so far, you know, uh, it's being received very well. It's, it's, it's a number one bestseller in Canada. It's in the New York Times bestseller list. So it's, it's receiving a lot of attention and a lot of warm reception. And my hope is that it'll help transform people's relationship to themselves into their society. The book is called The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Thank you so much, Dr. Gabor Mate. We appreciate your time this morning on this Motivational Monday. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mate, addiction expert, speaker, best-selling author. You can get more at drgabormate.com. Last name is M-A-T-E. 